All right. You have your Bibles, or your phones, or your iPads, or whatever holds the scripture text for you. First Corinthians chapter 15. Hopefully tonight will be helpful in multiple different ways, and I'll try to be um, thoughtful of your time tonight. I I don't want to get to the place where we don't have time for prayer on Sunday night. I think it's a significantly helpful, um, meaningful way we worship Christ together. Um, I have had people say they don't come to Sunday nights because they're afraid they're going to have to pray. And, and I know for some of you, anxiety in praying with others is a very real thing. Uh, hopefully Sunday nights will give you an opportunity at some point to get over that fear and to get comfortable praying with one another. Uh, there are different... Um, Ways maybe we can help you if that's a real fear you have. Uh, I would encourage you to talk to me. If you know someone else that has that fear and you want to help them, talk to me so that you, I can share with you some ways I think we can help one another uh, be more comfortable praying publicly. I don't know that we ever have you pray by draft publicly for everybody. Usually the biggest group is about five to ten. Uh, ten would be the largest group you usually have to pray with. But uh, We're going to be in chapter 15. I'm just going to introduce the passage, and then we hit a theological snag that I think is worthwhile, really valuable for us to meditate on tonight. So most of this evening will be, uh, in terms of biblical study, we'll be considering the issue of losing your salvation, warning passages, etc. But I would like to at least give you a brief outline for the first handful of verses in chapter 15 uh, with what the Apostle Paul is accomplishing. I had the privilege of sharing the end of chapter 15 this last week as we um, were at Lucy's funeral. And there's such rich blessing in this text. Um, he's dealing with the resurrection. Apparently, the Corinthians, for whatever reason, have begun to somewhat spiritualize the resurrection, as in maybe the body doesn't get resurrected, but there's some type of spiritual afterlife. Perhaps there's something like that going on. Or just point blank, there is no, no afterlife. There's nothing after death. It's the end of the road for you, Buster. Um, but in any case, there seems to be some level of general doubt in the general resurrection of the believers, where they think Christ has been raised from the dead, but people don't get raised from the dead physically, especially. So, you know, you get to the end, he's like, we have to be raised, we have to die and be raised in order to be um, suitable people for eternal life in the eternal heaven, right? We have to, like, what is, he says, what is mortal must put on immortality, what is perishable must put on imperishable. Um, you know, fish have a body that's suitable for water. We need to have a body suitable for heaven. And so it seems to be really pressing, not necessarily that there is no resurrection, but pressing against the idea that there is no bodily resurrection or no real resurrection, maybe I could say. Okay, having said that, I want you to come down to chapter 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preached to you, which I, which, excuse me, which you received, in which you what? Stand. So he's confident that they are in the gospel, that they're in fact standing in the gospel, and then he immediately says, by which you are being saved if you hold fast. Now that seems interesting, doesn't it? Salvation for this text seems to indicate it is an ongoing gracious operation of God that also is assuming we do what? We remain in it. We hold fast. That sound like Philippians a little bit for you? Um, and then he says, unless, in fact, you believed in vain. Now, he's going to go on to say what he means by believing in vain. I think there is a way in which we can 
um, we can make the gospel less than the gospel, in which case belief in that gospel is a false hope because it's a false gospel. And this is what he's going to say in the following text. In fact, if we have a gospel that doesn't include all the elements of the gospel, you cannot be saved by it. Verse 3, here's the gospel, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as one, uh, that word untimely born has the idea of like miscarried or aborted. Um, and, and it may be some way in which he's pushing back against their criticism of him as somehow less than a good apostle. So he, he might be leaning into their claim, like a miscarried apostle, one who, who didn't receive the full glorious natural birth of an apostle. Um, ha, let, let me just pause here before we continue reading. Notice in verse 3, I've delivered to you what is first important. What is most important? But he's, he's defi- de- really defend- excuse me, defined it in verse 1 as the what? And now he's, he's teasing out what, what he means by that claim. What is he teasing out? The gospel. So when in our church, when you speak to others, this is what generally you should be thinking of when you say, we need to give them the gospel. What is the gospel? He defines it for us. It is this. Christ died for our sins. What else did he do? He was buried. What is burial? Why is that theologically significant? It's proof of death. You don't bury living people. And the Romans were way too savvy to bury people who were alive or to let them off the cross before they died. So, so his, his burial is significant, not in the fact that burial is somehow redeeming, but burial is proof of death. Okay, so he died, he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and how burial proved death what proves resurrection being seen and then he lists multiple people that that have seen the risen christ so he is claiming that here's the essence of the gospel that the living innocent christ died for our sins according to the scripture and that he was raised the third day according to the scripture and these irrefutable facts are the central message that saves mankind so let's, let's, let's be clear theologically in our church when someone's preaching to say the gospel, generally we shouldn't think of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Generally we should not think of the whole scripture. Generally what they should be meaning, and I say generally because sometimes people preach it wrong or say it wrong and we want to be gracious as a church. We should be meaning these, the, the encapsulated truths that, that focus on the work of Christ to save our souls through his death and resurrection. That's, that's the gospel. This is the message. Now, notice he calls it of what is of first importance. Um, I am considering doing Ezra and Nehemiah in my next series. One of my challenges is I consider outlining it and preaching it. There's a lot of genealogical naming and, and stuff in there. And I, I mentioned to my wife just in passing, I'm like, yeah, I'm not sure how I'm going to cover that. I may just kind of move over it quickly. And she was, she was like horrified. Like somehow my doctrine of inspiration was just like thrown out the car window as we were driving. 
And, and, but, but a passage like this reminds me that all Scripture, while precious and inspired, is not of equal importance. There are some texts that are actually of first importance, right? right? They, they're, they're so essential. They're so precious. They're so important for us to grab a hold of that were we to lose hold of them, we in fact are not saved if you hold fast. And so those are the doctrines that not only need to be repeated in the church, they need to be paraded as gloriously necessary for salvation because they reveal the glorious Savior in whom we trust. Now, I mentioned all of these claims of people that have seen the resurrected Christ. He is establishing the fact, not a theology of, but a fact of the resurrection. The theology of the resurrection will once again reinforce this, and he's going to show us that in verses 12 and following, but we're going to stop at verse 11 for tonight. He says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy, in verse 9, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God, but by the grace of God I am what I am. Now, I, I find that compelling. And by the way, I think this is helpful for us in any role God ever puts us in. Um, it is both humbling and emboldening. Husbands, why do you lead your home? Maybe I should say it better. Husbands, why must you lead your homes? Because by the grace of God, you've been put there. And so you should say, I am what I am by the grace of God. It is not because you're smarter. Because just face it, boys. <laughs> I know you. You know you. When you look in the mirror, you're not smarter than the girl sitting next to you. And some of you, maybe we could just say, odds are 50% of you aren't, right? Like, I'm just assuming there's pretty equal intelligence among men and women, and if that's true, that means 50% of you might be. But in any given situation, I know the smartest person when it comes to relationships and people in my home is not me. I probably have about four people in my home. Girls just seem to have just an... Uh, a natural aptitude for understanding people better than most men. It's not always true. But I don't leave my home because I'm better, smarter, bigger. I leave my home because God's grace has put me there. Paul is not claiming to be an apostle because of his own worth, not because of his own education. I mean, even as he leads into this, he's basically acknowledged he was miscarried as an apostle one born out of time, and to add insult to injury, he also persecuted the church of Christ. So why is he an apostle? Because he has been appointed to that position. And that's really helpful for, for him to say that because then as he leads with authority, they say, well, who are you? I am merely obeying my king is who I am. I am positioned here by the grace of God. And notice what the grace of God does. The grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. In other words, he's appointed me to this position, and he has shown himself strong in making me the type of vessel that should be in this position. I worked harder than any of them. Who's the them? The other apostles. That's a pretty audacious claim. Line up the other 11 next to him, and he says his ministry has been more productive, right? I've worked harder. 
though I, it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So he's been appointed by grace and sustained by grace. And he wants them to know that grace was not in vain. He has plowed a bigger field than any other apostle. That's pretty breathtaking. And he doesn't do it in, a, in, in an unreasonable way. In other words, he's not boasting. He is, he is in many ways telling the Corinthians their boasting and their subtle rebellion against his apostolic authority is out of line according to God's grace. It's out of line according to the manifestation of God's grace by working in him to effectively minister as an apostle. And they need, they need to follow him because that is how they follow Christ. So, and he says, verse 11, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. I mean, at the end of the day, the spoon carrying the food to the mouth of the Corinthians, the gospel food, is somewhat irrelevant. Whether it's silver, gold, or plastic, what's important is the food, the gospel believed and, and taken and held. And so he says, you believe this, this gospel. Now, if you take away the resurrection, what do you take away? Everything. You, you, you gut the gospel of its hope. In fact, he says in a few verses that if you take away the gospel, we are of all men most be pitied. In fact, we are still in our sins. And the outcome of that is we might as well, he doesn't quite say it this way, but eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we yeah, there's no afterlife. Live for this life. Suck every joy out of it you can because this is all there is. And, and, and the hopeless um, kind of despair that leads to is anti-Christian, isn't it? And so he has a strong aversion to people who pull the resurrection out of the gospel. In fact, do you think the, the Apostle Paul makes it clear that if you don't believe in the resurrection, you cannot be saved? Okay, so, so his concern about holding fast to your salvation is primarily a doctrinal concern. Are you still with me? Okay, good. I'm glad you're with me. I think you should be. I want you to look down a little further, and you'll see that the Apostle warns them. Let's see if I can find it in my notes. Verse 33. And it also has practical applications. When you get your doctrine wrong, your practice gets wrong too. Um, as we look down further, verse 33, do not be, see, uh, be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. I think you could also have good behavior as a translation there. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. He's talking about behavior stuff. And then he says, for some have no knowledge of God. And I say this to your shame. So he is blending together now as he really presses on them that this doctrine of, of no resurrection is leading them to chaos in their lives. He's also, I think, suggesting, at least implicitly, that when we embrace or tolerate bad doctrine or bad behavior within the church, it spreads. So I would, I would think we have a strong challenge to churches to be gracious but proactive at challenging false doctrine, especially the, I think the rebuke ought to be firmer and quicker and more sharp the more close it is to the gospel, what is of first importance. And the same thing is true of practice. 
the practice that undermines or invalidates the, the scriptures, rebels against the scriptures, the more clearly revealed it is and the more clearly it is gospel defection, the more quickly and harshly or, or um, what does he say? It says rebuke them sharply. The more sharp that rebuke should be. Right, so, so like if you have something that's like 18 steps removed and takes 13 leaps of logic to get to, and you're going to go like hardcore rebuking someone, chill. Okay, just you might want to say, well, I'll let the Lord rebuke them in their time. But man, if it's close to the gospel, if it's clear in scripture, if it's a, if it's a defection in practice, do, do not be patient. Do you want someone to be patient with you and let you just kind of like idle in sin for a couple months while it's like clear, bad sin? Or do you want someone to quickly come alongside you and say, hey, maybe I'm not seeing things right, maybe I don't understand the situation, but can you help me understand? And then if you affirm the sin, then the rebuke kind of comes after they understand the situation. I want someone to do that in my life, and I think, I think that's what the scriptures themselves do. So I want to deal with the warnings now, because I think in verse 2, you have this really clear warning. If you hold fast the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So I think he's dealing with two things. Maybe perhaps they're doubting the gospel. And so he's theologically seems to be granting that unless you believed in vain. That is, if you have walked away from a, a gospel fidelity, you've believed in vain. And if you don't hold fast, you are not saved. Okay, so, so what are we to do with warning passages in Scripture? Someone last week asked me and said, Mark, it sounds like you're preaching to save people, telling them they can get unsaved. And, and, and they were a little concerned that I was, I was unsaving people. And I, I try to share with them a couple thoughts that I'll, I'll share with you tonight. So I want you to imagine multiple people. We'll, we'll say five people. You have them on your sheet in kind of a chart format. Um, we, we don't always know the heart, but, but there's multiple people that I think we should represent in any sermon or as we look at the warning passages and kind of theoretically think through who we're talking to. Okay, so we have someone within our church, maybe. Well, let's just start with outside the walls of a church. Do the warning passages say much to the person who is unsaved and knows they're unsaved and doesn't believe in God at all? The warning passages really aren't for that person. I mean, perhaps at best, what we would say is, by sharing with them the warnings of Scripture, we preach the gospel, and therein Christ is glorified, and they are warned. But the warning passages assume the person is saved. So we have within the context of the church someone sitting there who, who says they're saved, but is actually, in God's program, at least at this point in time, not a believer. So maybe you could say from God's, and, and here's your chart here, the condition of their, their true condition, they're unsaved. They would profess salvation. That might be two different ways they would do that. Some of you, this was you. At some point in your life, you were an unsaved person sitting in church claiming to be a saved person, knowing full well you weren't. Anyone of you? Okay, some of you. Like, you knew you weren't saved, but you told everyone you're saved. You know, they said, hey, can you share your testimony? And you just flat out made it up. I know we had someone in here who made up their testimony at one point. They're like, yeah, that was kind of hard. <laughs> wow, Okay. Yeah, they knew. Warning passages are for them. But warning passages are more, for, more than just for that person. Warning passages are also for the person who truly, sincerely thinks they're saved, but either doesn't understand the gospel. Like, 
They, they believe and affirm the gospel, perhaps just in assent, but they truly don't trust the king. So they don't follow him. They don't take up their cross. <coughs> I think with a culture of easy believism, sometimes just merely assenting to, you know, maybe even a child, you know, raise your hand, repeat this prayer after me. They sincerely believe they're saved, and they may not know for years that that personal conviction and trust in Christ has been somehow uh, miscalculated because of that early um, poor presentation. And so that's confused them, and they sincerely think they're saved, and they're not. So warnings, warnings for that person can be very helpful. So what do they accomplish? What is the biblical purpose? I think here's what it is, that they get clarity about the cost of not having Christ. They get clarity about defection. Maybe I could put air quotes around defection, because if you're not saved, you can't really defect. But from their position, from their, their maybe self-identification, as one who says they're Christian, they, they, they have the badge, you know, like, there, there's a bumper sticker, I'm a proud Christian. And then life gets hard, and they, they want to take that bumper sticker off. They know what that means eternally. And probably at that point, that crisis of salvation is very real. Like, at that point, they know to defect is to prove a lack of salvation. So, that person knows them. That they're heading towards condemnation if they, if they pursue sin. They have their eyes opened wide. And I think this is what happens in Hebrews 6. I think in Matthew 13 with the parable of the sower, you see this with the person that um, is represented by the, the seed that falls on the hard ground and the seed that falls among the weeds. It's a, that's a person who seems to be a convert, probably thinks they're a convert, and then hard times come and they drift away. This person has been warned that that defection let me just say this. This person will always follow sin's siren call when it gets strong because they do not have the Holy Spirit holding them fast. So, they head towards condemnation with eyes wide open, knowing they need Christ because these warnings warn them. I think this is where the church can get it wrong by not preaching the warnings well. So let's assume that we have someone who is, oh, let's say it's a, a 23-year-old guy, and he starts dating this girl, and he knows she's not saved, but she is the love of his life. And so he begins to pursue her, knowing it's disobedient to the Lord. What should we say to him? Well, I think this is where these warnings come in. Is this is, this is a, a call away from defection. I think too many times Christians have a little bit of, of the thing that Paul is fighting against in Romans 6.1. Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? What is he going to say? Hey, I'll marry her, and then I'll do what? <laughs> yeah! Like, then God will forgive me. I'm still saved? And this, this person needs to be warned. That type of defection is proof of the absence of the Spirit. And, and, and the warning should then like hit us hard if, if we have this kind of option between Christ and sin, especially the type of options of, of a new state of living. That that's an ongoing, held-on-to decision. Now, I, I can be sympathetic for a man who in 
a moment of frustration um, and anger sinfully expresses it. I can be sympathetic for a lady in an incautious moment speaking something out of turn and perhaps slandering or gossiping a sweet friend and then repenting. But to have premeditated, ongoing decision to sin is a significant defection that the church shouldn't take lightly. Um, let me, let me, um, I didn't read John 10. I think we presume in our church we all believe you cannot lose your salvation. There are churches that teach you can. But I just want to be clear, you cannot. So Hebrews 10, Jesus says, I'm going to start with in verse 25. 25, I told you, and you do not believe. He, that is, I told you I'm the Christ. I told you I'm the Messiah. You don't believe me. And the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them, and what do they do? They follow me. Now, that's not a warning text, but that really helps us dissect them, doesn't it? Why do people not stay following Jesus? Because they're what? They're not a sheep. So we're sitting there talking to the flock. You're all sheep, right? I don't know. We might have a hairy goat in here. Well, how do we know they're a goat? They look sheepy. What do they not do? They're not continually following Jesus. And so when, when I tell you all, you're sheep, and we all must follow Jesus, that proves our sheepiness. And it validates. But if you wander away from the shepherd, it's because you're not a sheep. I mean, even look at how he says it. I told you, the works I do declare it, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. I guess that. Why don't people even follow Jesus to start with? Because they aren't his sheep. Why don't they remain? If, if for some reason in life's course, a goat finds himself on the sheep path, it's not because he has a new shepherd. It's because it works out. Because it's convenient. Because it suits his goatiness. But as soon as his goatiness pulls him away from the shepherd, he's going where he wants to go in his goat heart. <laughs> right? Because he's not one of Jesus' sheep. It's interesting that's a causal word there, right? Because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. No one steals his sheep. Now, I would suggest to you that also means he doesn't ever have sheep wander away. I mean, who can steal your salvation? Do you think Jesus is declaring that Satan is, is um, kept away from you? As in, like, Satan will steal you against your will? Or do you think his point is, is that he is a shepherd who guards you so that you and Satan do not get you away from his shepherding care? Right? Like, no one can take you out of his hand. Okay, so, so assuming that then, when we get to Hebrews 6, if you haven't read Hebrews 6, Hebrews 6 will kick you in the teeth. Hebrews 6, really helpful text here, and then I'm going to really try to start cranking through that chart for you. If anyone wants my notes on the chart, I'll, I'll be happy to send them to them. They're, they're not that great, but if you don't get them written in, you might appreciate having them. Hebrews 6, probably one of the more difficult texts on warning passages because it seems so clear. And this is why I think we ought to recognize 
the people being warned in these warning passages think they are saved. All right. Verse 6. Did I say verse 6? Let me start in verse 4. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and are holding him up to contempt. Now, I'll tell you what. If someone gave a testimony and said, you know, I was 14 when God enlightened me to see his grace, and I tasted of that heavenly gift of salvation, and the Holy Spirit has made me new, and I just love God's preaching and have experienced the power of redemption. Would you vote him in? Like, if that's their membership testimony, it's like, that's convincing. But I think that's the point. Is there are people who are very experientially part of this. They hear preaching, they love good preaching. They've experienced the joy of uplifting hymns. They've experienced the sweetness of community and of God's grace. And, and they're so embedded into the life of the church that they experience the blessings of being with God's people and even the, the overflow then of God's grace in their life. And knowing all that they know, because they know it, they've been enlightened. For them to turn away, knowingly turn away from God's grace, it seems as though, in some sense, the apostle says it's impossible for them to come back. Boy, that is, that's a warning. Right? Like, that's the type of warning when you are tempted by sin to walk away from faithfulness to Christ should wake you up in the middle of the night in a cold, terrified sweat. I had a sweet friend of mine who was struggling with sin, and he knew he needed to confess, and he was struggling with sin. And when I talked to him, because he had just repented, he was broken. He said, I knew, he, I mean, he basically said it this way, I knew it was my sin or heaven. Like my soul was on the line. I couldn't sleep. And so the next morning, when everyone else got up, I confessed my sin. It was incredibly powerful for him to be warned by God that to hold on to sin and not repent of it as a Christian is to defect against Christ. Because it would have been, he would have been confirming himself in a state of sin, is really what he was saying. Um, moving on. So, what, what then does it do for saved people? Hopefully, I'm talking to all sheep, all saved people tonight. So, to the doubtful and anxious, sometimes the warning passages could probably unsettle them a little bit, right? But here's, I think, the ultimate long game of the warning passages. That, that there is a clarity gained as God's Spirit keeps them in the faith and fills them with His character and helps them to stay true to Christ by walking with Him. Let me say that again. There's a clarity gained as God's Spirit keeps them in the faith, as God continues to work His character in them, and as they are faithful in their walk with Christ. Some of you are anxious people by kind of personality bent and maybe just by cultural teaching because our culture has made most of our young women anxious, anxious people. 
And it has to do with so many different things in our culture. We don't have time to dissect it, but it is a hard thing to grow up as a young lady in our culture today. And so you hear preaching, and it's like, well, if you don't follow Jesus, you're not saved. And you're like, oh, man, yesterday that person drove by me, and I was like, I don't like that person. Maybe I'm not saved. And, like, it hits you hard. And then there's people like me. Lord has hit me with a two-by-four before I know I've sinned. You're like, man, why couldn't I be confident like him? Well, let me just tell you, warning passages should hit me too hard. I'll get to, you, to me in a second. But to you right now, if you're one of those anxious people, I think it's the long game here that through the pattern of faithfulness, God confirms his work of grace in you because those warning passages tell you defection proves unbelief, faithfulness validates, verifies, or reveals saving faith. So I think you actually have passages that say this. If you're in Hebrews with me right now, Hebrews chapter 3. I don't have a lot of time here, but look with me in like verse 14. We have come to share in Christ if we hold our original confidence firm to the end. How do you know you're saved? You are still holding him. Right? Like, so, 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 like, we want, we are such a feeling culture, right? So you have people like, I know the gospel. I know Jesus died for my sins. I know he resurrected from the dead. I, I know he's transformed me. But yesterday when that person drove by and I didn't like them, I didn't feel saved. And it, and it racks your, your heart with anxiety. But let me ask you, do you love Jesus? Are you still trusting in Jesus? Did you confess that, that moment of dislike? Are you holding him fast? What does the Bible say to you? We have come to share in Christ if we hold our confidence firm. How do you, how do you get confidence? By holding firm. And I think through the years, when you see the ways that you have been tempted, the, the, the world has pressed on you, and despite the feelings of insecurity, you have seen God hold you fast and you have held him fast, there becomes a strong witness. There comes a strong witness that you are, in fact, one of God's children. And you dare not get relaxed in that confidence because the confidence should actually remind you, keep on holding on, right? But I actually think the warning passages end up strengthening because perseverance proves faith. Does that make sense? None of us is perfect. First John 1, if any of you say you have not sinned, the truth is not in you. Right? So like, no one is perfect. No one doesn't have a thought or an attitude or an act they don't need to repent of. That is a constant daily need of the believer. And even, even the psalmist, cleanse me from my hidden faults. I mean, you don't even know the ways you're wrong. That's normal Christian walk. But we're repenters. For those who are saved, I think there's an overconfident person. And he's a little bit careless. He's the kid who's skipping and playing tiddlywinks right by the cliffside. It's like, man, kid, you could fall. He's overconfident. Maybe a little bit like Peter. Everyone can deny you, but I will not deny you. What ends up happening to Peter? The overconfidence is a really dangerous thing in our spiritual walk. So this is what the warning passages do, right? They, they warn the reckless believer who is careless of his sinful choices and his 
Um, his doctrine is always creative because he enjoys considering the possibilities of doctrinal deviation. And he's warned that this is the path of danger. And for the believer, that cautions him. I think for the unbeliever, for the pretender who's overcautious or who's not cautious, that warning is, is, is disregarded. Does anyone know what the Cliffs of Moore are? In Ireland? If you've ever seen Princess Bride, the Cliffs of Insanity? Every year people die. When I was, I was there in 99, um, there was no guardrail. It was fantastically fun. But you're talking about hundreds of feet drop right into the ocean. It's really cool. Uh, I remember because we'd take like little wafer-like rocks and you'd throw them like Frisbees out and the wind, because coming off the ocean, the wind would hit that rock wall and just shoot up like probably 40 mile an hour wind blow it up off the face of that. And you just, you could float a rock. You just throw it out there. As long as it was spinning and it keep his motion, just float. Every year people die though. No guardrail. I thought it was great. You know, because like you'd be right on the edge. You could ding your feet over and look over like this huge drop. You and I should be cautioned. The warning passages are guardrails that keep us from falling off the edge. And the foolish, the unsaved, are reckless and fall. Those who truly have the Spirit of God, when God's Word warns them, the Spirit of God makes it work, caution into us. So that, and, and again, remember the Corinthians, evil um, companions, corrupt. So even that, even, even, even that, that thought that, well, I can be friends with this person. This, this thing won't affect me. I can, I can flirt with this sin or this person or whatever. Uh, the, the believer is warned. That type of reckless boldness that Peter had led to failure. And so they're cautioned from it. I think the unbeliever passes on and is punished. So the result is that um, I, I, I use the word creative doctrine. And foolish, sinful choices are seen as dangerous, and they avoid them. I include with this Hebrews 5.11 through 14, and then um, along with Hebrews 6, 1 Corinthians 15.33-34, and then Matthew 26, that's the Peter example. Finally, how about the confident person? I would say generally the righteously confident person. Should you be confident that God's saving grace has come to you and redeemed you? I think you generally should be confident. I always get a little bit, I don't know, annoyed with preachers who are like, are you 100% confident? Like, I, I don't know how to quantify my confidence. Now I don't know if I'm 100% confident. I'm clearly not 100% confident that I have 100%. Like, like how, do you, how do you measure this thing? And now I'm like, huh. Man, I'm feeling like I'm anxious about like, confidence. Clearly I have issues. And then I'm like, wait, this, this is not biblical language at all. Let's just stop this nonsense. Um, do you have trust that God has saved you? By his promises, do you believe in them? Do you believe that Jesus Christ has lived a true and righteous life, that he has died a, a death for your sake as a perfect, sinless, infinitely worthy sacrifice? Do you believe it has been raised again that his sacrifice was accepted by the Father for your sake. Do you believe he was raised from the dead? Do you believe that this has been applied to your account? 
when the answer comes back yes, yes, and yes, and yes, you're confident. If you're like, well, I know it happened, but I don't know if it's mine. I can understand that. Right? Like, like there are people who don't know if it's theirs. So that person, I think, is spoken of in the previous warnings. What about the person who is just genuinely biblically confident they're saved? I think there's a reminder to press on. Right? There's a reminder to keep at it. Uh, for instance, Paul talks about, I will discipline myself. I'll, I will not box as one who beats the air. I will not do this aimlessly. I will run with purpose because I, after I preach to others, do not want to be disqualified. Or you come to Hebrews 12, where all of this discipline is happening that we might share in the peaceful fruit of righteousness. And then it says, make, make, make straight paths for your feet and heal what is lame so that it is not broken. I think the point is, is if you're injured spiritually, fix it. Because life is hard, and it could cripple you spiritually. He's talking, I think he's talking, he's, it's a warning context. Right, and then he says, because without holiness, no one will see God. So, so the, these contexts push the faithful Christian to keep on pressing. So no one should be in the spiritual cruise control position. Where your foot's off the gas pedal, and, and you're not paying attention, and you're not pressing. Maybe I could take you um, just to the last example of 1 Timothy 4 in closing. I think it's, it, it hits on two cylinders for me. First Timothy chapter 4, talking to Timothy, who is a... Oh, he's a believer, yes. He's also in the position of, I think he's probably a pastor at this point in his life, right? He's, he's given the role and responsibility of leading a church here. Then he's called to preach, right? 2 Timothy 4. But we come to 1 Timothy 4. And you look, it's such a strong passage, it's hard not to, let me go back. I'm going to do it anyway. I said it was hard, and I just gave in. First uh, Timothy 4.11, command, the apostle says, and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth. He's probably mid-30s. So when you think of a youth, you might think of a 22-year-old pastor like Spurgeon or something like that. It's probably more kind of on the cusp of middle age, 35 there. Uh, command, teach these things. Let no one despise your youth, but set the believers an example in speech in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching or the doctrine. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. You catch that little tag? Man, there's a lot of power in the tail of this text. What happens if he's faithful in this? Who gets saved? So why is Paul telling a pastor, his protege in the faith, someone who says was saved in 2 Timothy, why does he say you're, you're saved if you do this? I 
Well, I think one of the means by which the Spirit keeps us saved is the Word of God. Right? Like, it's not as though, like, if we were to use, like, like election, God has elected people to salvation. How then do they get saved? Well, well, they can't get saved unless someone tells them, right? Isn't it faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God? And then he says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. It's a quote from the Old Testament, right? So, so what's the necessary tool, instrument, God uses to, to bring about his purpose in salvation? Gospel witnesses. What's the tools, the instruments that God uses to keep you in the faith, to keep you persevering? What are the tools he uses? Good pastors preaching good doctrine. You save people who hear you. If you have bad pastors who don't care about the doctrine, don't care about the word of God, your soul's in jeopardy. Because your, your heart will defect from good doctrine and your behavior will be corrupted by bad pastors. Now, we should, we should have such antipathy for some of the churches in our country. Dislike. Oh, this is, there are people damned to hell who are sincerely believing their pastor's preaching. And God help that pastor, right? How, how does Timothy stay safe? Well, he's the pastor, so he doesn't have a pastor preaching to him. What does he need to do? Man, he, he better immerse himself in it. Pursue it. People should see him getting Richer, thoughtful, biblical, should see his speech get cleaned up by the word of God and the ministry of the Spirit. They should see his growth. It should be evident to all. He should be an example of the believers. He needs to devote himself to publicly reading and preaching the scripture. And as he does this, God secures the congregation and the shepherd. When we look at these warning passages, one of the reasons is, man, we are lazy people. We are proud people. It's part of our fallen nature. And sanctification calls on us to be humble enough to cling to Christ by clinging to his word, by immersing ourselves in it, by listening to faithful shepherds, by, by being devoted to Christ, by not taking incautiously our salvation in hand, but holding fast. The warning passages must be preached to people who think they're sheep. People who know their goats don't care. It's only those who think they're sheep on whom the warning passages have fruit. So when I say something like, hold fast to Christ because your salvation depends on it, I am not saying you are, you are going to lose your salvation. I am saying the evidence that you are saved is by holding fast. But the way the scripture says it and the way it should be preached is a warning. Because, because in outward appearances, and maybe even to yourself, if you're self-deceived, it's as though you've lost your salvation, even though we know theologically from God's point of view that's not what's going on. And so, to back up why warning passages should be preached as warning passages, because that's what they are. And they're the means by which God secures us and helps us hold fast. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm going to end like I did last week, but before I do, I'm going to give you three minutes of questions. 
We'll see. Miracles can happen. Andy, I saw your hand first. Yes, did I give it to you? I don't know. Results? Um, I'm sorry? So biblical purpose, I, I mentioned most of that, but the biblical purpose for the last, um, the saved person who's confident is that they're reminded to press on so they're walking in grace, strong in doctrine when the winds of trials come. Would you like me just to give you my sheet? You can, you can just have the copy. And if anyone else wants this, I'll send it to you or print one off for you. Abby. That's a great question. Okay. I, I think there's multiple things that need to be said. Um, I'm just going to assume because the question's coming from you, Abby, that you're probably working with a young lady. But maybe not. I, I don't want to make too many assumptions. But I, I do think recognizing that within our culture, um, I spoke at a singles retreat recently. And I just mentioned anxiety and some of the things that I've learned from even the ladies in our church, the young ladies who struggle with these types of thoughts. And I mentioned, listen, if you're struggling with anxiety, that's pretty normal. And I shared a couple of resources and gave a couple of thoughts. And I had like six girls come talk to me. Like, oh, please, can I have those book, like the titles of those books? Like, like our world is wringing the worry out of these girls. Um, it's one of, one of my, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly frustrated with society and, and social stuff in general. But... Um, I, I think one of the ways we counsel them is, is at least at first reminding them that your feelings are irrelevant. I'm talking about feeling versus faith and knowledge. Okay, so, so when we talk about feelings, like there's anxieties and feelings that um, are righteously found from the knowledge of the Word of God and its correct application of Scripture. That's generally not that this person is struggling with. So I would take them probably to 1 John and say, listen, if your heart condemns you, he is greater than our hearts. Because there are, there are things you're thinking and feeling that are neither grounded in truth, nor does Christ agree with your feelings. And so I'm going to pray that the Lord helps you to correct your feelings and that your feelings submit to his lordship. And you should pray that way too. Okay, number, number two, I'm assuming you've already worked through the gospel, by the way. Make sure they get the gospel. Make sure they understand that. Because there's an objective reality that must be believed. Jesus Christ lived, died, was raised again. Gospel. Um, number two, I, like First John, like I, I, I was a little bit frustrated with some of the responses to First John recently. Um, because First John's written. Why is it written? Does anyone know why First John was written? Okay, it's written. Verse 13, chapter 5. To you who believe. Why? So that you might know. So when you preach First John and everyone gets anxiety that they're not saved, we're doing something wrong. It's written so you know you're saved. So I think sometimes these warning texts, rather than confirming us in salvation, we're kind of stripping, out, we're stripping everyone of biblical confidence. Um, and I think part of that is because we don't understand things like um, habitual states of sin versus moments of sin. And that's why I try to say, you know, uh, you know, someone cut you off in traffic and you have an angry thought and you're like, oh, no, I'm not saved. It's like, no, you're a sinner. And you're yet to be glorified. So, yeah, you messed up. Repent. Move on. But that person will be racked with guilt for days over that moment. Like, man, where did that come from? Maybe I don't have the Holy Spirit in me because that just arose. I didn't even think about it. I was like, boom, I'm mad. Like, yeah, that's 70% of our church. 
and they're the true church. So, so part of it is they don't understand the nature of sin. Part of it is, is they're highly introspective because our world keeps telling us to look inside. So we need to get in the scriptures. Um, they need to love Christ and reaffirm that love and worship Christ on Sundays and find joy in Christ. Man, it is so encouraging to look around our church on a Sunday morning. It is so sweet to hear our church sing. So, I mean, there, there's tools like that. I, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm already over my three minutes, I'm sure. But thank you for that, Abby. Just like tempted me and brought me right into failure. Okay, let, let me take these two questions, and then I want to take some time for prayer. It is, it is incomprehensible that the apostles, who generally were killed because of Jesus and the testimony of Jesus, who were generally in poverty their entire adult lives after this point, that they got no human good from it. Their only hope was eternal life. It's, it's incomprehensible that it was a fraud that brought them nothing but despair and sorrow this, in this life. Yeah, I, I think... I think because they would have had to be insiders in the fraud, they, they were not the victims of it, but the perpetrators of it, it makes no sense. It's, like I said, it's incomprehensible. Travis? That's a great question. Um, I, I have an article I would recommend that I think does a good job of working through that, and you might enjoy reading it. I have a PDF on my computer right now. Um, but I would generally say, and some of those things, Within the church context, there is a lot of um, grace flowing. I would hope that the ministry of the Holy Spirit has been experienced today in Dan's preaching this morning, <coughs> in the singing, even in the ministry of the Lord's Supper. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, but to think that the Holy Spirit was somehow not actively ministering, even to the unbeliever today, in convicting him of truth or enlightening him, I think misses the broad scope of the Spirit's ministry. And so I do think there's a sense in which someone can feel and experience the gracious work of the Holy Spirit and deceive themselves about participation with him in it. But I think that article will explain it better, and it's been some time since I've read it, but I would recommend it for you. All right, I said that was the last question. I'm glad to see you're all actually honoring that. Okay, let, let's, let's end with... Um, <clears throat> Thanksgiving again, I think, I think it's profitable for us to remember 